It's recording. Good morning, everybody. We're going to get going. Now that Wiley's here, we can get started. And uh, let's take a minute to pray. Father, thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for the study we've enjoyed these, this past year. Thank you for the truth of your word, and thank you that we have that book open before us today. We pray that you would teach us as we look at this subject of the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that you would excite us, build our sense of anticipation for what is to come. And so we pray that you would be our teacher this morning and bless the speaking and hearing. May it all be to our good and to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started our journey through 50 Core Truths a year ago this month, and uh, it was Pastor Ted's vision to take us through this brief systematic theology, and that's what this book is. It's a, it's a summarized, abbreviated systematic theology so that we'd be more firmly grounded in what the Bible teaches on its core truths, the truths that are at the very heart of what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't come to us as a systematic theology. It comes to us as a story, doesn't it? It's the story of what? The story of Christ, the story of redemption. It's the history of redemption. And that unfolds as a story. But because the Bible is what it is, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God, it is unfailingly consistent in all it teaches us, even though it unfolds as a story. Your stories and my stories are not always consistent, right? You've, you've seen that at school, Amy. We've seen it here at school. Uh, tell me what happened. Blah, 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 blah. Five minutes later, tell me again what happened. Blah, 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 blah. It's a different story. It's not altogether consistent. And so we've got 40 plus different authors writing their story. But because the Bible is what it is, it is always unfailingly consistent. So that it's safe to go to the Bible and take all that it says in Genesis and all that it says in Exodus about God and all that it says in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation, and, it, and we can build a systematic theology about God, and it's going to be consistent because of what the Bible is. So it's the discipline of systematic theology to gather together all the Bible teaches on any given subject, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God the Son, of God the Holy Spirit, of man, of salvation of the church, and for these last few weeks, the doctrine of, what's the big word? Eschatology. Eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. So that's what, this, that's what our textbook is. It's, a, it's a, an abbreviated systematic theology of all the Bible teaches on these critical core truths. Today we finish our journey through systematic theology with this last chapter on the new heavens and the new earth. Next Sunday we'll be back in the Learning Center with Pastor Keith's class at 9.30. You get to sleep in. <laughs> Not. Um, so we'll be back in there next Sunday. Um, I, I've got to confess lots and lots of help from other books and commentaries and discussions on this subject. Um, Eschatology is not my go-to subject. Okay, so this was plowing new ground for me to teach, actually prepare to teach on the new heavens and the new earth. So what I'm tempted to do is to boil it all down and say the new heavens and the new earth, the curse will be gone, Jesus will be there, and it's going to be forever. Do you have any questions? <laughs> good. We can only... Isn't there a song we can only imagine? That's true. 
we don't have a lot of specific details about what it's going to be like. So, no curse, the presence of Jesus forever, let's go home. Okay, we'll stay. Just curious, how many of you grew up with the idea that we would spend eternity in heaven walking streets of gold? You know the old, some of you aren't going to know this, but you know the old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? Anybody know that? No, raise your hand. Okay. That propagates the idea that we're just going to walk streets of gold and there's nothing about the earth because our future is in heaven. We grew up with that idea. This world is not, I'm not going to sing it, okay? Don't worry. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Now there's a, there's a piece of truth to that, right? We're aliens and strangers. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, you know, I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? My, what's that very last line? Okay. Um, and, and all the verses build on that idea that heaven is where we're going to be. Heaven. Not earth, heaven is where we're going to be. And I remember the first time I ran into the teaching of a renewed earth for all eternity and it was like whoa that's really something there's going to be a renewed earth and it's not all going to be walking around on streets of gold um, so it's actually pretty amazing how much the Bible says about the earth, especially in terms of future. You trace the word earth or land through the Bible, and there are hundreds and hundreds of references to earth and land, meaning terra firma here. Okay? You know what terra, terra firma? It's the ground. Sorry? Solid ground. Solid ground. Um, so... Let me, let me do just, uh, this, is, this is really fast, and uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but here's Psalm uh, 25. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Who wrote that? Three guesses first, two don't count. David. David. Even if you didn't know David wrote that one, it's a pretty safe guess because he wrote most of them. Oh. When did David live? Uh, okay, I don't need a date. After what? After Israel had inherited the land. They were residents in the land that God had promised to them. And as a resident of the land God promised to them, he said, who's the man who fears the Lord? Blah, blah, blah. His descendants will inherit the land. There's something more going on there than just terra firma at that present moment. Um, Psalm 37, Psalm 37, 9. For evil will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. But the humble will inherit the land. What's that remind you of? Beatitudes. Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now that'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? If the earth the meek are going to inherit is this. With all of its curse. There's something more there. Than just the present earth. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in the amount of prosperity. For those blessed by him will inherit the land. Those cursed by him will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it. Hello? Forever. That's pretty cool. Um, let's look at some other passages. Isaiah 60. Violence 
will not be heard again in your land nor devastation or, or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. What's that remind you of? Any bells going off? It reminds you of the end of Revelation. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Isaiah's talking way back 700 years before Jesus about the land and no need for light because the Lord will be the light. And Revelation ties that to what? The new heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. One more passage about the earth. Um, that passage in Revelation is actually the tail end of that chapter that begins with, and I saw the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Coming down to where? Coming down to earth. One more passage concerning the earth. The middle, this is the middle of Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but, we, but, our, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There's redemption coming not just for these bodies, but for what? The creation. The creation. Creation here refers to the physical creation of this present age, and it's here personified as groaning and longing for redemption which will come about at the same time as the full and final redemption of the sons of God, and that's when Jesus comes back. You know, you know what ought to buzz through our minds when we see or hear of um, a natural disaster? It's groaning. groaning. The creation is groaning. When the plates shift and, and earthquakes devastate whole communities, it's groaning. <laughs> what do you do when you've been sitting for two hours and you go to get up and that catch hitches right here? Oh, we groan. And I hope that sparks a little bit of a longing for the day when we won't groan anymore. The full redemption of our bodies. So my point here is simply to say that we should not be surprised when we come to the subject of eschatology that the Bible has a good bit to say about the new heavens and the new earth because there's going to be one. And it's going to be new. The earth has not been out of sight or out of mind since the very beginning of creation. And it will certainly not be out of sight or out of mind in the age to come. The earth plays a huge part in the history of redemption. It is the stage on which this history unfolds, isn't it?
right here. And in many ways, it's a magnificent stage. In many ways, it declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, right? In the beginning, every part of it was declared good. And when God finished the work of creation at the end of six days, it was declared very good. But if this fallen, broken earth presently declares the glory of God, that's, um, isn't that the beginning of Psalm 19? The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That's creation. If this fallen, broken creation is declaring the glory of God, what is it going to be like when it's new? And the curse is gone. Because we'll be new too. I think it will still be able to take our breath away. In ways our breath has never been taken away before. So my point is simply to say, the Bible has an awful lot to say about the earth. And it's going to be renewed someday. And it will, it will, it will in ways we can hardly imagine declare the glory of God. So, let's try to answer uh, four questions today about the new heavens and the new earth. What are they like? When will it happen? When will these new heavens and new earth come to be? How will it happen? And so what? Always ought to be a so what. Shouldn't there? What's this mean for me right now? So what? Okay, so what are the new heavens and the new earth like? And I should just mention here that we're not talking about heaven as the dwelling place of God. There's no imperfection there that it needs to be made new. We're talking about the heavens that God created in the beginning. Okay? We all on that page? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the heavens we're talking about. Let's t I, I, I want to take you through some scriptures. And then we'll make a few comments about them. This is Second uh, Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to his promise, that takes us back to Isaiah 65. For behold, I create... This is Isaiah. Hundreds of years before... Jesus came and he says, for behold, <clears throat> I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Don't you wish you could just blot some things out of your mind and they'd never come back again? I do. That's going to happen someday. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. That's the new heavens and the new earth. One more passage for now. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. So, what are the new heavens and the new earth like? That's the question we're trying to answer. We're not addressing everything in these passages we just read. We'll come to that. 
But right now we're just asking the question, what are the new heavens and the new earth like? Well, let's look back at what they were when they were first created. You know the language of Genesis 1. It was all declared, at the end of six days, it was declared very good. How many of y'all have been to the Creation Museum? Pretty cool, isn't it? And their displays are magnificent. But I'm not sure they're all that close. They could be. But I'm guessing that the original creation was mind-blowingly magnificent. More than... What's the guy's name who did the creation museum? Ken Ham, thank you. And he's done a great job, and that really helps us. But more than the mind of any mortal sinner, redeemed sinner, can imagine. The original creation had to have been mind-blowingly awesome. It's hard for us to imagine what that must have been like. Us, Us without sin, the earth without the curse. But the cursed earth and indwelling sin is all we've ever known. And it's evident everywhere. You see it in the weeds and thorns and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and forest fires and volcanoes and drought and floods and storms and disease. Don't you? Now, we don't see that all the time. But that's the effects of the earth, that, w- that the only earth we have ever known. It's the curse. It's everywhere. And we see it in us. Think of all the things that cause mourning and sorrow and tears and grief and pain. Think about the disappointments, the discouragements, the sickness and disease, the losses, the heartaches, the brokenness, the separations, the darkness, the fears, the unknowns, the failures, the broken promises, the injustices, the betrayals, the violations, the hurts, the denials, the failed dreams, the dashed hopes, the missed opportunities, the betrayed loyalties, the lies, the misrepresentations, the unfounded rumors, the gut-wrenching diagnoses, the words that pierce like arrows, the violated trusts. And think about those things not only as they have come to you, but those things that you and I have caused to others. Have you ever shed blood with your tongue? Your words are like piercing arrows. I have. That's that's the earth and the creation that we know. It's not everything, but it's the part that hurts. The cursed earth is all we've ever known. It's evident everywhere. So when the Bible talks about the new heavens and earth, all that will be gone. What do you say? I didn't know. I didn't have anything to put up there. I don't know how to describe it. It's gone. The curse is gone. 
There is no more curse. No more broken promises, injustice, betrayals, violations, hurts, denials, failed dreams, dashed hope, missed opportunities, heartaches, losses, disease, gut-wrenching diagnoses, the words of pierce like air, violated trust. It's gone forever. You got something to put up there? Except, amen. The new heavens and the new earth. It'll be the heavens and the earth with the curse erased. You know when you erase something on your paper, you can always tell that something's been erased, can't you? The new heavens and the new earth, the curse will be erased, and you'll never even know that something has been erased. It'll be that new. No evidence of the curse. Erase in such a way that there are no scars left. The curse will be gone. And there's an interesting expression in Revelation 21.1. Remember, we read it a minute ago. There is no longer any sea. What's that about? Anybody have an idea? Sorry? Okay. We're thinking of the, of the turbulent ocean and the monsters that may be in the ocean. But the Bible is even more specific. And that's all true. The Bible is even more specific. The sea that no longer exists symbolizes that realm from which chaos and rebellion have emerged to ravage the earth. I'm quoting from uh, Dennis Johnson's commentary on Revelation. Daniel saw four hostile beasts representing the pagan powers that would arise in history to press God's people and where do they come up out of? The sea. And it was from the sea that John saw the beast emerge to receive the dragon's devilish power and wage his devilish war against the saints. But there won't be any of that in the new heavens and the earth. New earth, the sea will be no more. The sea that gave rise to opposition and rebellion and turmoil and destruction. Virgin comments on this. He thinks it has something to do with just separation. He's supposing, I think, that, that the sea separates. Separates in what way? People from people. So I don't know. Possible. <laughs> okay. Spurgeon's always an imaginative guy. <laughs> and that may well be. No separation. Separation across the sea, yeah. And then you have this expression in Second Peter three <clears throat> about the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Um, this is another quote from an old commentator. His name is Alexander Nisbet. He was a, he was from Scotland, and he he lived and ministered and wrote in the mid sixteen hundreds. So we're reaching back, but he makes a good point. There shall neither be sin nor temptation to sin. Just hang on that for a second. There'll be nothing to hook into your conscience to pull you in the wrong direction. There'll be nothing to snare your heart to go where you shouldn't go even if only in your mind. There shall neither be sin nor temptation to sin. There shall be no wrong nor oppression nor affliction which are the consequences of sin. There shall neither be any change or any possibility or fear of change for righteousness, which is banished out of most parts of the earth these days, shall have a constant mansion there, as the word signifies where righteousness dwells. And then you have what we read in Revelation 21.4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We have never known that. We have never known that before. We've had, haven't we? We've had little tiny tastes of the absence of sin. We had little tiny tastes of, of real deep joy. We've had little tiny tastes of a sense of the presence of God. But even those little tiny tastes are being experienced by a what? A fallen creature. Take the fallenness away and go from little tiny to unspeakably infinite, infinitely huge. And how do you describe it? Wow. Wow. Now, I don't want to lose... I don't want to lose the sense of wonder and amazement and blessing of that promise. But I need to make a comment on Isaiah 65.20. We read that earlier. Actually, we read the passage right ahead of that earlier, and I didn't read verse 20 on purpose, because we're going to come to it now, and somebody would ask a question about it, Jason, so I'm going to try to answer that question ahead of time. Um, the context of Isaiah 65.20 is the, is the two or three verses right before that. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Okay, context, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered to come to mind. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying. Then comes this statement in verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. What do you do with that? That's always been a problem. It's it's the text that premillennialists build one of the key texts they build their case on for a little or thousand year earthly reign where there will be death before Jesus comes back the last time. But let me I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this real briefly, okay? This sounds like there's gonna be death in the new earth. That's not what Isaiah is saying. The context is clear. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying, which happens every time somebody dies. Revelation is is crystal clear. There will be no more death. In Revelation 21, he's describing, and I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And he says later in a chapter, there'll be no more death. Isaiah says, for I create new heavens and a new earth. No weeping, no more sound of crying. But how do you describe to earthbound people like us who have known nothing but finite things, how do you describe to us an eternal state in which there will be no more death? You stretch their imagination in terms they can grasp. A youth who lives to be 100 years old Impossible. We can hardly imagine what that's going to be like. So, if the youth, let's pick a seven-year-old, lives to be a hundred years old, 
How long will, a, will an 80-year-old be? 8,000 years old. <laughs> Isaiah is underscoring that there will be no more death by taking words that we can at least begin to comprehend a youth who a youth who lives to be a hundred? I can at least begin to process that. Can't you? A youth who begin who, who that's not gonna happen. So is death gonna happen? No. No. It's unheard of. We can hardly imagine what's, what that's going to be like. So Isaiah is stretching our imagination with terms that we can begin to understand to think about something that's just unheard of. So I don't think Isaiah is saying there's going to be death in the new earth. No, the Bible is crystal clear. And remember that we're dealing with the language of the prophetic language that is often symbolic and figurative. And you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And Revelation 21 is clear that there'll be no death. So the glory of the new heavens and the new earth is not just the absence of sin and all of its associated consequences, but it will be the very presence of God himself. Revelation 21.3. That's all I'm going to say about that text in Isaiah, in Isaiah 65. Um, just like all the texts that you've shown, it's like there will be no more of this, no more of this, no more of this. And that's like there's going to be no more people getting cut off. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No more of that. No more getting cut off. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the glory of the new heavens and earth is not just. We've been talking about the absence of all the brought. And there's a lot of rot we've got to get rid of. Okay? But that's not the heart of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. At its heart is this, the very presence of God himself. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. This in the chapter describing the new heavens and the new earth. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. It's, it's, the, it's the ultimate fulfillment of the promise God made, the covenant promise God made way, way, way back to Abraham when he said, I will be your God and you should be my people. Here it is. Infinitely so. God will be among us. He'll dwell, the tabernacle, he's going to dwell among us. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And there shall no longer be any curse. There's, there's another underscore of no more death, because death was part of the curse, right? <coughs> And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. What do you say? about that. I, I said this a minute ago, I, my, my mind goes back to it. We've all had moments, all too few, when we have enjoyed the felt presence of God. Maybe in the middle of a worship service. Maybe in our private devotional time. Maybe when we've been pouring out our hearts to him over some major critical issue in prayer. 
and we have sensed really the presence of God. More than, more than just normal, okay? We've all done that. That's been, that's been like this. Okay? Get rid of all the effects of the fall. Get rid of the curse. Get rid of the remaining sin. Get rid of temptation. Get rid of, get rid of all the stuff that weighs us down as a result of the curse. And take this and expand it infinitely. Because the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. In the new heavens and the new earth. The tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. I need another blank slide up here. What do you say? What do you say about that? It will be better than we have ever imagined. I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty decent imagination. Don't you? Read the book before the movie. Sorry, that's a little aside. Read the book before the movie. My Hobbit was way better than Peter Jackson's. My Gandalf was way better than Peter Jackson's. But it will be more than we have ever imagined. The new heavens and the new earth. Okay. Um, questions or comments? We got, we got three more things to go and they'll be much shorter. Just one quick comment on the uh, <coughs> getting rid of the ocean. Um, I always picture the ocean as basically our life because out of that comes water, which is rain, which is <coughs> the earth without water, obviously, you can't live. You take a look at Revelation 22 1, it says, The angel showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. <coughs> so the life then no longer is in the ocean, so it's no need for it because it comes from God and the land. Good point. <coughs> so the two things that you mentioned, both, we need sin to be gone in order for God to be with us. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, we're not. And we get both. Yeah, we get both. Nothing's missing. Okay, when will it happen? Today? <laughs> when will it happen? When will all this take place? And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, <clears throat> from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and the Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Immediately following that statement, that's a statement of the last great day of judgment, right? Immediately following that statement come these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. When this happens, then I saw new heavens and a new earth. Matthew 25, 31 makes it clear that this scene of judgment takes place when the Son of Man comes in his glory. The context of Peter's statement about the new heavens and the new earth is this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then, and then just later he says, about, he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. The day of the Lord is what? It's that day when Jesus returns to earth. It's the day that ushers in the great day of judgment. It's the day that brings this age to a close and inaugurates the age to come. It's the return of Jesus. 
That's when all this will happen. Boom. I don't know how it's all going to unfold. How long is it going to take Jesus to judge the nations? All the nations will be gathered before him. Nobody's going to be absent. How long is that going to take? Boom. Or is it going to be? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Does it? Because when Jesus comes, all this stuff is going to happen. That will inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. And ends this age and inaugurates the age to come. How will it happen? Let's go back to Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. With intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How's this going to happen? Two basic views of how this is going to happen. They both end up in the same place. One view says that the present heaven and earth will be totally annihilated, vaporized, completely and utterly destroyed, and the new heavens and earth will be made out of nothing like at the very beginning of creation. And Peter's language almost sounds like that, doesn't it? The heavens will pass away with a roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Kaboom. Possible. The other view says that the heavens and earth will not be annihilated. They'll be radically changed and transformed so that no remnant, spot, or stain of sin and of the curse will be left in them at all. They'll be remade. All the, all the remnants of the fall and of the curse and of, of all the difficulties that we experience will be, will be that's what will be burned away and destroyed. When you look at the language of 2 Peter 3.10, our text, this, it's pretty strong language, but then you remember that the word destroy is also used of what happened to the earth at the time of the flood. And I said, Genesis 9.11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water, by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Did the flood totally remove the planet? But did it destroy the earth? You bet your boots it did. So destroy is not necessarily equated with annihilation, with, with vaporization, with it's gone. But everything that smacks of the curse about this present creation is going to be gone, destroyed, burned up. <clears throat> Again, Alexander Nisbet on 2 Peter 3.10. As for questions which may be stated here, it is much more safe for us to give time and pains that we may be found of him in peace at that day than to be taken up in inquiring and determining whether the visible heavens and the earth and the rest of the creatures of that kind shall then be totally and forever annihilated or whether, shall, or whether there shall be a new addition of them all or of some of them only to be lasting monuments of the power and glory of the maker. It's all going to be new and God is the one who's going to do it. And does it matter how he does it? No. no. He's going to do it. And it's going to be cataclysmic. It will be. So what? It's our last question. So what? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Skip to the end. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. 
Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you say that the thing you're looking for and waiting for and expecting is a world in which there is righteousness and no sin, how can you continue to do that which belongs to the realm of sin? If you're looking for the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells, then what are you doing messing around with sin? If you can mess around with sin and it not grieve you and, 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 and give you a sense of, of your grieving God and you cannot repent and, and be grieved over what you've done, then you're not going to be at home in that world where there is no sin or curse. <clears throat> the so what is we better be pursuing sanctification and holiness and righteousness and we better be putting sin to death and we better take that seriously and take conformity to Christ seriously and we're not playing games. We're preparing for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Be serious about holiness. That's the so what. That we look for new heavens and a new earth. And then Peter also adds hastening the coming of the day of God. Um... Let me back up just, just, a, just a hair. Um, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Uh, there are other texts about, about pursuing holiness. Um, so at the end of Second Peter, this passage on the board here, Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What's our posture, our mindset about the new heavens and the new earth? Are we, are we eagerly anticipating it? Are we looking for it? Does it come into our thinking? Does it serve to lessen our attachments to the temporal and strengthen our allegiance to what is eternal? Are we looking for it? Do we, do we, how, how often do you think about new heavens and new earth? I can't wait. No. None of us. Not often enough for me. But then he says, hastening the coming of the day of God. It can be translated in speed the coming. How can that be? God knows the day. It's determined. Can we change it? Can we make it come sooner? The answer is no. But I think the point is similar to the tension between the doctrine of election and the responsibility to pray and evangelize. We're responsible for the means God has appointed, and he uses those means to accomplish the end that he has determined from eternity past. So it is with the coming of the day of God. When the gospel goes to the whole world, then shall the end come, Matthew 24, 14. So we best be about getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that would include the ends of our communities and neighborhoods and of all the countries of the world. And that will contribute to the return of Christ and the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And that will be an absolutely magnificent, unbelievably glorious day. I can't wait. But I have to. Jason, would you pray for us, please? Lord Jesus, come quickly and accomplish these things that you don't promise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stop. Twice.